Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Based on elevated financial risks, pretty much across the board, I'm going to focus on the most important drivers of pretty much all our financial markets in today's podcast. In the past 30-plus episodes, the importance of new money creation by our Federal Reserve is front and center as both a mitigator of past recessions, depressions, but also a creator of future financial crises. This is not on purpose, but it is on purpose that all their resources get focused on bailing out the country and buying more and more of our government's burgeoning debt. There are perhaps unintended consequences on their part, but there are consequences. Let's imagine the following in your own community, no matter where you live. Let's play like the city or county treasurer, your city or county treasurer, is empowered to create new money for your community. The new money could be currency or simply certificates like food stamps, gift stamps, and so forth, but for any kind of purchase. Everyone in your community accepts this new money, as well as accepting the typical federal government currency. Further, assume that everyone in your community, each family member, receives new money that translates into $1,000 in future purchases or payments, again for each family member. Would you agree that purchases in payments increase prices? Let's focus on this. The renter with new money, could pay more rent, could get a larger or more luxurious apartment. The parents could buy more and higher quality food. Children would get more toys and games. As families spend this new money, the prices would go nowhere but up. Since the short-term numbers of apartments would stay the same, New apartments could not be built in the short term. New toys and new games could not be ordered or received, typically from China, in less than a number of months. In short, there would be more money chasing the same amount of goods and services. I know this is a simplified example, but please stay with me. As prices increase, the community gross national product, or GDP, which would be the value of all goods produced and sold, would go up because of the new free money. If interest rates were already close to zero, who's going to want to save the new money? In particular, who'd want to save when everyone catches on that prices are ramping up? Spend now and you can buy more than saving and buying later. In total, the earlier you spend your new money, the more you can buy. Buy real estate now, as it'll be priced higher in the future when everybody else catches on and tries to buy. Buy stocks and buy collectibles that go up, as those who don't need to consume more food and toys, for example, know that owning part of real assets, assets that are with us for a long term, even including stocks in companies, present future opportunities to capture higher prices of goods and services. Companies can benefit by increasing their prices. Increasing their prices could result in income of the company going up and at some point the stock price is going up. So stocks could look pretty attractive. Bonds, on the other hand, do not benefit as they promise a fixed dollar return, which will not go up as prices or price inflation takes place. 
Let's finally assume that your county clerk is the keeper of all economic records and community data. As the keeper of all official records, the county clerk has his or her own dashboard of economic health. Since the clerk's office is only a few people, they cannot possibly survey all the prices of everything in your community. They can only track a sample and then do so only once a month, once a quarter, and so forth. The elected lead executive of your committee, we can call a person a governor, we can call a person any title you wish, but the lead executive of your community wants to keep everyone well off by supporting the issuance of new money. However, the mayor would grow concerned when rents and house prices begin to surge and store shelves would quickly become emptied. In the quest to help everyone, it would be quickly realized that new money could cause rapid new money flows into real estate, store-bought items, and certain services. When all the new money is distributed, almost everyone could afford a meal in a restaurant, a massage, or even professional manicures. But does everyone get these benefits? No. Why not? The earliest spenders and investors quickly use their new money before the entire community so the ones who are later to the game pay higher prices with their new money. They are only able to buy less than the people at the beginning who realized the new money impact. Let's go back to the mayor or governor or other titled or elected political leader. The leader would know if he or she could calm the inflation fears and they do know that they have certain tools to calm inflation fears, particularly if large amounts of new money are created. For example, he or she could avoid, to some degree, market instability, which I'm defining as rapidly bidding up prices. So some would even be more unaffordable. Some prices and items would be even more unaffordable than before the new money would be issued. Let's assume the clerk would know that reported price increases could be lessened by picking a sample of items and services that did not include the large price movers. These days, the large price movers could be, and that many people are not tracking, could include lumber, copper. Lumber and copper are important for new houses. Wheat, corn, soybeans, which are really staples for eating. And these, among many other prices, have increased pretty dramatically in the past three to six months. But I digress. Let's go back to our example. Each quarter, let's assume the clerk reported that the sample of market-priced goods and services barely increased. So some of the market fears actually could be calmed, and even the increases in rent could be lessened by changing the market price weightings of rent expense in the sample. But... Anyone watching home prices, construction costs, and the stock market, and anyone invested in these areas would be benefiting by higher and higher prices. I'll stop here, but you should have some food for thought, no pun intended. Unless actual increases occur in the production, not price, but occur in the production of goods and services, an increase in money supply adds only to the prices. For example, if money supply would increase 20% and production and services, goods and services, would remain the same, prices would ultimately increase by about 20%. Not so crazy, right?
there's a lot of data that supports over 100 years this type of behavior. But again, it shouldn't be surprising. Here's the point. Most people are not better off than they were before the new money was created. Most people can buy what they bought before, even though the GNP or GDP was shown to increase by 20%, and we all should feel better about an increase in gross national product or gross domestic product, the prices themselves create higher GNP or GDP. In my view, we all need to think seriously about the impact of the Federal Reserve increasing the money supply at substantial and record rates. In recent months, these increases are far more than 20% on an annual basis, with some months up much more than 20%. Recall I said most are not better off? Some people may be better off. Who are they? They are the ones who spent or invested their new money early on. They knew or assumed, if they waited for government statistics to ultimately confirm price inflation, it would be too late to benefit. How do those in your example benefit aside from jumping to the head of the line, you might ask? What do they do? They buy their consumer needs more in advance. Hoarding is not recommended, as over a year or so, most consumer items will be replenished. I'm looking at items that have upside price pressures because of much longer lead times and those that will not spoil with age. For example, New lumber supplies require decades of tree growth and require supply chain rebuilding to comply with increasing regulations. Of course, an increase in long-term interest rates will be an issue for another housing finance crisis, and that would change new construction commitments, as it did back in 2008, 2009, 2010. But since that time, there has been chronic under-construction in housing. A few markets may be the contrary, but across the United States, most of the large markets, including Los Angeles in particular, have had far more demand for housing than construction after the Great Recession period. So that may be an overriding consideration, even if interest rates begin to go back up this year, long-term rates begin to go back up. The fact that there is a chronic under-construction in Los Angeles may counter an adverse interest rate change. So maybe a large pullback in Los Angeles new construction may be years away. So how about something more immediate? Buying consumer items is one alternative. Investing in new housing is another alternative. And investing in new housing may be, at this point, a good alternative, despite the usual cyclical downturn, which will ultimately come. Additionally, most of the new liquidity across the country has made it into the U.S. stock market. After all, money has to go somewhere. Those who have limited amounts of money face the consumer price increases along with ultimate rent increases in our example, particularly these days after the eviction moratoriums terminate. Those with high amounts of income and or high amounts of savings seem to have really focused on the stock market. If we turn to governments, governments continually need new large investors for their new debts, and the Federal Reserve is providing those needed monies, with not so much new money appearing from private investors. And a reminder that pension funds, holders of long-term government bonds, are underfunded and may be sellers, not buyers, for other reasons. And the Social Security system 
also is in a selling mode since payments of Social Security benefits exceed the amount of money being brought in by those assessed for Social Security. It's complicated, but I really want to get into some thought provokers, additional ones. Rarely will you see or hear some of this discussion, so you decide for yourself if this helps you in your career and investment plans. Let's go back to money creation. If money is added to that already in circulation, gross domestic product, I use interchangeably with gross national product, there are slight differences, but GDP is increased accordingly. Prices of items go up. If quantities stay the same, GDP will go up. But at the same time, the previously existing money supply means that the value of all transactions is reduced in proportion to the additional money. I'll get into a little bit more detail. I I hesitate because I'm on the verge of getting into a lot more quantitative areas, and I don't really want to do that for a podcast. Anyway, despite the temporary boost of new money entering the economy, once that distortion is fully absorbed, the debasement of the value of transactions will mean that there's been no increase in economic activity. No increase in economic activity generally means no new jobs. So this is highly relevant for jobs creation. For confirmation of the points so far, I want to show you a case where the increase in gross domestic product in the United States, as reported, is no more than the addition of money. If we go back to 2010, stay with me, please. This is not going to be as complicated as it sounds. In 2010, the M3 money supply was $8.7 trillion. In 2019, the M3 money supply, the total, was $15.3 trillion. Okay, what's that mean? Well, it means if we go back to the 2010 reported gross domestic product of the United States, it was reported at $14.8 trillion. So if we just add the increase in money supply between 2010 and 2019, between those two numbers I just mentioned, that increase in money supply would bring the United States gross domestic product in 2019 up to $21.4 trillion. And funnily enough, that's almost exactly what the 2019 gross domestic product was reported by the government. So there is an argument, maybe a little bit extreme, but not off target, a little, that the gross domestic product of the United States 10 years ago and, and the gross domestic product in 2019 was only price increases, not increases in production. And this is, this is really important because it brings together a lot of the money creation of the Federal Reserve. It brings together what people perceive as real growth in the U.S. economy, where I would argue there may not be any real growth in years, pre-COVID, during COVID, and in my view, after COVID. Because our economy has had no real growth, Despite official reports of inflation and real growth, because of the way the sample is reported, there has been and still is little or no full-time job growth. Rather, the reported job growth is importantly part-timers, with the long-term unemployed ignored or not counted any longer in the unemployment statistics. This sounds pretty dismal, so what could reverse the long-term trends? Well, we're on a path. 
And it's going to be very difficult to get off of this path because every day, every week, every month, the Federal Reserve continues to buy new government debt. And we continue to get reports of the Consumer Price Index. And I think we continue to misunderstand that the CPI, as reported, is not a very good variable or a proxy for real inflation. So I'm going to argue for your thoughts. First of all, using new government debt for new infrastructure. Today and yesterday and last year and five years ago, new government debt has had a pretty much total focus on entitlements that are consumed. We need investments in job-creating activities. So if we go back to the Great Depression, the WPA programs are worth bringing up and thinking about again. We're not doing that. It's been discussed by the past administrations, both of them, but we're not doing it. I don't see that we have more than just a nod in that direction in terms of legislation, but creating new government-supported, debt-supported infrastructure, which would create jobs and actually have a long-term benefit for future industries and jobs, it's not in the pipeline in my estimation yet. Additionally, or another alternative, would be to do a global reset on government debt. This is going to seem pretty radical. And this has not been successfully accomplished yet that I'm aware of. For example, the Federal Reserve and the central banks like the European Central Bank could figure out a way to forgive a large part of the government debt they bought. So the Federal Reserve could forgive debt it owns that it supported from the U.S. government, but the owners of U.S. debt that is not the Federal Reserve would continue to hold that debt and would be paid. So the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, other central banks, could all at the same time orchestrate a debt forgiveness of the government debt they own. If this could not be done successfully, it could actually generate another dollar crisis. Major global holders might fear that the debt they own is next to be forgiven, and that itself would cause a global run on selling U.S. bonds. So this is very tricky. It's an alternative. Another alternative is to cut back on new government spending. We are like a rocket ship moving past the fail-safe area on this one. New multi-trillion dollar spending programs can be expected, as we all know. No one is really talking about cutbacks. So in some respects, we're on the path of an unguided missile. Massive resources created and launched this missile, but no one knows where it will land much less the size of the explosion when it runs out of fuel and drops to the land or the ocean. Another alternative is to convert all government bondholders to interest only. And that this would be a real last resort, but it's an alternative. And everyone would be treated the same where bondholders would get interest payments of a set amount, say 2 or 3% a year, but there would be no refinancing and no maturity or payment of the principal of these long-term bonds for some extended period of time. Other countries have actually issued very long-term bonds, 60-year bonds, 100-year bonds, but we are at a point now every month where we are having to refinance large amounts of bonds that come due. This is not a good alternative, and that would likely take congressional approval and would likely you know, require potentially emergency powers. The alternative we have is stay the course. We create new money, allowing the Fed to keep buying new government debt, and we just see how long this strategy will last. In the last major recession, 2008-2009, the Great Recession, 
a moniker was used to the lower no quality debt securities that were related to real estate. The moniker was extend and pretend. In other words, pretend that the securities were high quality and extend the maturities. Many of those securities were purchased by the Federal Reserve from the banks to shore up the bank's balance sheet. That did get us through a crisis where, as in our example, the leadership avoided a panic or a financial panic. That certainly was avoided. We came close. And maybe the present course gets us through another month, another year, another decade. But large amounts of money creation are, in my opinion, impacting certain prices, importantly housing, stock market, raw materials, while continuing to redistribute wealth to the high net worth investors. The present course is a big detriment for those needing to consume all their income or those who really are needing full-time jobs while they notice their income buys less and less. I'm sure there are other alternatives, but so far we remain in search of good alternatives to the continued money issuance and debt issuance. As promised today, we do have thought-provoking issues and alternatives, and we'll leave you with those. In the next podcast, we'll return to jobs, economic trends, and important learning objectives. Thank you. Stay safe. Be cautious. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.